Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're all well. Thank you for tuning in today. In this webinar, we have two presenters who will provide you insights into best practice in road safety infrastructure programs. My name is Eliz and I'm the moderator today here to provide any technical support if you need. You can contact me by using the chat box in your sidebar if you're experiencing any issues. For those who don't know about us, Austro supports its member organisations, those listed on this slide, to deliver an improved road transport network. Our members are collectively responsible for managing 900,000 kilometres of road valued at more than $200 billion. We are proud to bring this webinar to you today. Here at Austroads, we use a program management approach where each program focuses on an operational area of the road system. This Austroads project falls under the safety program. And just some housekeeping items. The presentation will run for approximately 35 minutes altogether. We then have a live Q&A component at the end where you could ask our presenters any questions. We are recording today's session and we'll email you the recording once it's been uploaded on our website. The presentation slides can also be downloaded in the handout section in your sidebar. As per usual, we'd like you to participate in the webinar, so please don't be afraid to ask any questions or let us know your comments. Simply type your questions into the questions box at any stage of the webinar and we'll answer them after the presentation. We ask that you please let us know the slide number your question relates to to give our presenters some context to your question. This webinar will provide best practice recommendations for the development of road safety infrastructure programs that align with the safety system approach. If you haven't already done so, you can download the related Ossoroads report from the handout section in the webinar toolbar or on the website shown. So as I mentioned earlier, we have two presenters. They're joining us from a company, Abley, in New Zealand. Firstly, we have Paul Jordan, who is a director and is a nationally recognised expert with specialist skills in the areas of road safety, strategic and integrated transport planning, and the development of best practice guidance. Hi, Paul. How are you today? How is it over there in New Zealand? A little bit wet and rainy today, but we're all good. <laughs> so thanks for the intro, Liz. No problems. We also have Dave Smith, who is an associate and has 18 years experience as a transportation planner and modeler, having worked on high profile infrastructure and development projects in Australia and New Zealand. Hi, Dave. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Liz. And here is the agenda and I'll pass it on to Dave. Yeah, thanks again, Liz. Uh, the duration of the presentation is approximately 35 minutes. And here is a list of the topics that we'll be covering in the webinar. Firstly, I'll discuss the project purpose, provide an overview of road safety infrastructure programs, and introduce the research team as well as our methodology. I'll then hand over to Paul, who will focus on the outcomes of the consultation and workshops uh, within our project, introduce best practice guidance uh, with case studies as well, and then present some recommendations for implementation, which also includes a self-assessment form for practitioners. Then we will address your questions. Firstly, on to the project background and an introduction to our team. This project supports the National Road Safety Action Plan 2015-17, which identifies four action areas, one of which is prioritising out investments in infrastructure. Under this action area, there are five specific actions, including to review road safety infrastructure programmes to establish best practice processes for identifying, prioritising and developing projects based on fatal and serious casualty reduction criteria. 
This project directly addresses that, and as such, the purpose of the project is to provide best practice recommendations for future RSIP development that aligns with the safe system approach as opposed to traditional approaches, and has a focus on reducing fatal and serious casualties. Within the scope of this research, we have addressed all road safety infrastructure programs, and some examples are on the screen now, such as the Australian Government Black Spot Program, New South Wales Safer Roads Program, Queensland's Targeted Road Safety Program, and Victoria's Safer Roads Infrastructure Program. We've also considered the successful implementation of route-based or mass action safety approaches. And a couple of examples there are the New South Wales Route Safety Review Program and Queensland's Bruce Highway Safety Infrastructure Program. The project is owned by Austroads Project Manager Joseph Lee from Transport for New South Wales, who has supported the research team throughout the project. A huge thanks goes out to Joseph for the job he has done and the support he has given our team. Abley are the lead consultants, and we've engaged three sub-consultants for this work, specifically Safe System Solutions, based in Melbourne, Mackey Research in New Zealand, and Alison McIntyre, who's a self-employed consultant. The research has been supported by a working group made up of national and state government representatives from across the Australian and New Zealand jurisdictions. The research has had wider in input from road and traffic authorities as stakeholders. And the finished product, which is now available online, has been endorsed by the Austroads Road Safety Task Force, as well as the Austroads Board. Here's our research team. Uh, you've met Paul, who's our technical lead, and myself, who is the project manager for this work. Also on our Abley team is Dale Harris, who is specialised in uh, the research and analytical tasks uh, throughout the project. We've been supported by three sub-consultants, uh, Ken Beer from Safe Systems Solutions, who has led the consultation and facilitated the workshops, Alison McIntyre, who has delivered the literature review, and Dr Hamish Mackey from Mackey Research, who is the internal reviewer and challenger of this project. The working group uh, includes representation at a state level from the eight jurisdictions. So a big thanks to David Moises, Alex Durden, John Matter, Craig Hoey, Pavel Potowitz, Joseph Lee, Simon Harrison and Colin Brodie, as well as representation at the national level from Lachlan Simpson and Sarah Lena. Here's an overview of our methodology. Uh, we'll be focusing on the uh, consultation and workshop side of things before presenting best practice guidance. At the start of the process, we sent out a request for information to each jurisdiction, asking to what extent road safety infrastructure programs are developed in alignment with safe system principles. And that included such matters as prioritisation methods, consideration of key performance indicators, program assessment methodologies, and a range of other considerations. This led to wider stakeholder consultation to explore these matters in more detail. In parallel, a literature review was delivered. This was a desktop review focusing on identifying current and best practice, both locally and internationally. The literature review and consultation outcomes were brought together to prepare a best practice straw man, which was then presented to the working group at a workshop in Sydney late last year. From this workshop, best practice guidance was developed and later refined along with a range of case studies that were exemplars demonstrating current best practice. And these are also available in the research report, which can now be downloaded online. 
I'll now hand over to Paul Durden, who will take you through the consultation and best practice findings. Thank you, Dave. So look, as Dave said, I'll step you through the consultation and workshops process in a bit of detail. We'll then head on and uh, work through the best practice principles one by one, and then cover off the recommendations for implementation. So consultation with the New Zealand and Australian jurisdictions took place in February and March 2017, and as Dave said, included the Australian federal government as well. The purpose of the consultation was to gain a detailed appreciation of how each jurisdiction develops and delivers their road safety infrastructure programs, and to understand which aspects of the development and delivery process work well, as, long as, as well as those that present challenges. Where possible, organisations brought along multiple participants to the stakeholder interviews, and that was really beneficial for receiving a cross-section of views from each organisation. Uh, the consultation followed a structured approach exploring the development and delivery of road safety infrastructure programs from strategic direction through to monitoring and evaluation. Uh, these six stages were identified as being the key building blocks in the process. We, um, it's important to say right now that we had really great engagement from each of the jurisdictions and it was very clear and evident that everyone um, that participated was looking for improved outcomes, not only for how they could do uh, their road safety infrastructure programs better, but to contribute to improving outcomes for the industry as a whole, so that was terrific. So through the consultation process, uh, we identified a number of key commonalities uh, under each of the six structured stages, and I'll share a couple of those under each one with you now. So under the strategic direction, there was general consensus that achievement of road safety performance targets requires funding to be set at a commensurate level, and that road safety infrastructure program development, delivery, and evaluation processes need to be consistent with the safe system principles upon which the guiding strategic road safety documents are based. Moving on to risk identification, Again, there was consensus here that uh, understanding risk at a network level, including local roads, is very important. Also, that risk should be defined as a measure of predicted future risk and not solely based on past crash history. Also, that risk analysis techniques need to align with safe system principles, such as the safe system assessment framework. On to countermeasure identification and development. The key messages here were that state jurisdictions need to provide guidance and directions to regions around their expectations for how countermeasures are identified in development. Also, and I'm sure everyone can relate to this, that as road safety programs expand in size and uh, urgency for delivery, that there's also a need for the capacity and capability of the industry to be increased as well. And also it was common for many jurisdictions to cite intra-jurisdictional tensions that needed to be addressed to ensure that safety outcomes are not compromised. In terms of programme development and approval, the key messages here were that prioritisation of programmes based on BCR needs to be revised to incorporate metrics that focus on desired outcomes of the programs 
that is a reduction in deaths and serious injuries, and that funding allocation needs to reflect both the scale of the problem and the level of investment required to reduce risk, and that better methods of facilitating innovation and justifying funding are required. Under the design and delivery stage, there were, it was identified that there's an urgent need for Austroads guidelines and processes to facilitate safe system solutions. And I'm sure you'll be aware that Austroads has been putting a lot of energy into this space at the moment. And there are a number of updates that are in the process of being completed or have recently been completed that are embedding those safe system principles amongst the guidelines. Another key message was that state jurisdictions need to work closer with the regions to improve program delivery. And lastly, and often the most overlooked area in the entire process is monitoring and evaluation. How well have things gone? And I think it was pretty unanimous across the jurisdictions here that everyone acknowledged that this is very important, but it's often done the most poorly and given the least attention. So at the same time, all of this consultation was being undertaken. As, as Dave said, a literature review was also completed. And when we brought the findings of the consultation and literature review together, the project team concluded that there was no one jurisdiction that existed that would be an exemplar in terms of best practice guidance uh, across all of these six facets. But we did agree that between the six, uh, between all of the jurisdictions and the six stages, best practice could be identified. So in May 2017, a, a set of road safety infrastructure program principles uh, were developed and presented to key stakeholders at a workshop in Sydney. That included best practice principles that were determined from general agreement during the consultation or literature review process and principles that were preferred by some but had no clear consensus across the jurisdictions. So the aim of that process was to distill the best practice principles in a collaborative manner with the stakeholders. And we had lots of discussion, debate, and there were some good exercises uh, that Ken Beer helped facilitate. One of those was where participants uh, placed different emoji stickers next to the principle statements to indicate their level of support, either positive or negative. Uh, and that really helped us as the project team identify those statements which had most support or needed most work. Following a second workshop held by teleconference in July 2017, a, best, uh, a set of best practice principles were agreed and I'll take you through those now. Uh, just at this time, it's important to um, remind you if you do have any questions, please type them into the GoToWebinar bar uh, as indicated on the slide onto the best practice guidance. Uh, again, uh, these were structured using the six stage RSIP development and delivery process that we've shown here. Uh, we'll work through these one at a time and let's start with strategic direction. Uh, just a reminder that the principles have been developed to align with safe system principles um, and that these principles are not necessarily what everyone is doing now. Some will be, some won't be but it's really where we want to get to in the future. So under the strategic direction, we have eight principles, which uh, span two slides. Uh, principle one is that the highest level strategic documents need to be based on safe system principles 
and to set ambitious targets and aspirational outcomes for road safety. It may seem obvious, but we need to state it. Number two is that safe system principles, targets and outcomes need to cascade down through action plans, implementation plans, policies, procedures and design guidelines. And this is to avoid the risk of watering down principles, targets and outcomes. Number three, safe system principles should be embedded at an organisational level, not just within road safety teams. This is a really key principle and one that um, many jurisdictions still have a long way to go with. Four, funding and safety targets need to be considered jointly when setting the strategic direction. So there's no point in setting a target if funding is not available to achieve it to the level that's required. Number five is that the road safety targets should be achieved across all of the safe system pillars, safe roads and roadsides, safe speeds, safe road use for people and safe vehicles as opposed to achieve by pillars working in isolation. And that's there an acknowledgement that we get the greatest benefit when we work across the pillars. And number six, an acknowledgement that external factors are responsible for explaining a large proportion in the change in number of road safety fatalities we observe, and that a process needs to be developed for assessing program performance independent of these factors. Number seven, each road safety program should set specific targets that can be measured, and some programs will have the potential to say to be more effective than others. So for each program, what is the expected impact in terms of KSI saved? That would be um, an obvious target that should be allocated to each program. And lastly, that programs, projects and countermeasures may not be fully safe system aligned uh, and it should be recognised that in many cases, countermeasures that are moving towards a safe system are entirely appropriate, uh, such as those described in the safe system assessment framework, such as supporting safe system treatments. Now, through the research, we identified a uh, case study for each of the uh, six stages, and these highlight jurisdictions that are doing some great things, so the first of these comes from Western Australia, where a road safety management system, which they've called ROSMA, uh, has been implemented. ROSMA takes a holistic view of transport and the interaction between road speed, vehicle and road user. And it's been developed in line with international best practice and is on track to be accredited ISO 39001 accreditation, which is the Road Traffic Safety Management System ISO. So under ROSMA in Western Australia, it sees all staff uh, being trained in safe system principles and all projects, regardless of whether they're a safety project or not, having KSI reduction targets attached to them. Uh, the ROSMA is seen as a great change management tool for breaking down internal barriers between competing objectives that often exist for transport projects. And it prioritises safety above all things and supports the concept of safe mobility that Osroads is now actively promoting. Moving on to risk identification, here we saw that there was unanimous support that uh, strategic view of network risk is essential to develop countermeasures and populate programs. Uh, we had five key principles identified. 
first of these is that risk analysis methods, uh, risk analysis needs to be completed at a network level, including local roads, for the purposes of prioritising investigation and investment decisions. Basically, if we don't understand risk across the network, then we can't know if we're targeting to risk. Secondly, that risk analysis methods that use a combination of crash history, as well as proactive estimates of risk informed by road, roadside, and land use features are the best approach for predicting future high risk locations. This acknowledges that crash history is not always indicative of underlying risk, and also that that process of relying on crash history alone is not aligned with safe system principles of waiting for crashes and fatal and serious injuries to occur before changes are made. We do need to acknowledge that it's relatively rare to get multiple separate fatal or serious incidents at one site, but it is very common for single high severity events to occur that could be predicted based on an equivalence approach. Moving on to four, uh, the risk analysis methods set by the funders should demonstrate how and why the selected methods will achieve the targets and outcomes uh, set out in the highest level strategic road safety documents. It's about aligning the method with the strategy. So if we take the black spot program, for instance, uh, its objective is to eradicate black spots, but it's not necessarily going to achieve a zero outcome. Number five is that risk needs to be understood from both a collective and personal risk perspective. Collective risk is a measure of crash or fatal or serious injury density, whereas personal risk is a function of exposure. If we rely on collective risk alone, then it's likely that jurisdictions uh, will effectively receive a traffic volume map, as we know volume is the bigger, biggest influencing variable on crash density. We need to know if the crash rate that is observed is above or below the expected level. The case study for this stage of the process comes from New Zealand, where the New Zealand Transport Agency has been putting a lot of resource into developing risk analysis techniques and metrics. Uh, they've adopted a mix of reactive and proactive techniques and use a combination of both collective and personal measures. Uh, in addition to the applications being used for network screening, prioritising and assessing KSI reduction potential, they're also being used to develop indicative programs of work and to inform other non-infrastructure programs such as speed management assessments and implementation plans. Critically, New Zealand has linked metrics to its investment framework so that funding is prioritised to locations with high crash risk as defined by the reactive or proactive metrics. And that results in improved access to central government funding for road safety projects. Moving on to countermeasure identification and development. Uh, this is typical for uh, this stage of the process to be decentralised, but that is changing, especially in places like Victoria and New Zealand, to name two. Uh, the first of these best practice principles is that risk analysis information needs to be shared with those tasked with identifying and developing countermeasures, and that direction should be provided around where to focus those efforts. So it's really about a continuity of messaging here and understanding. So making sure that those that are developing the interventions actually know what the risk analysis is showing. Number two, that those tasked with identifying and developing countermeasures 
should have a strong understanding of safe system principles and implementation. Now this goes without saying that it probably requires considerable industry upskilling um, and we know that people will tend to default to practices that they know and are familiar with. So people that are very comfortable and confident in terms of designing barrier systems will probably tend to have barrier systems uh, or programs that are dominated by barrier systems uh, as opposed to a full suite of safe system treatments. Number three is that the understanding of system failures that resulted in fatal and serious injuries across all pillars and the reasons behind these is critical to countermeasure development and this may include organisational behaviours. So this acknowledges that it can be easy to jump to conclusions regarding the, the factors that contributed to the system failure and again it highlights the importance of working across the pillars. Uh, number four is that countermeasures should be developed at a network and corridor level to support consistency for road users and this can be achieved by developing stereotype standards and performance standards that vary by road classification. Um, Oxford have a project that is well advanced on this matter uh, so expect to see some industry guidance um, published in the near future. Number five, countermeasures should generally be developed from a top-down rather than a bottom-up perspective focusing on maximising KSI reduction, but still returning a positive BCR. So this is acknowledging that what is required to reach the strategic goals, and that normally needs to be driven from a top-down approach. Bottom-up has been more common in the past, but that's now acknowledged as being quite a sticking plaster type approach to pick off the quick wins um, and isn't as effective as the top-down approach. And finally, the project should go through a safe system assessment at the time of countermeasure development, and that's really to help understand the extent to which the countermeasure helps move us towards a safe system solution. The case study here comes from Victoria. The Safe System Road Infrastructure Program, or SRIP, has developed uh, strategic investment guidelines that set out the investment strategy and funding allocation for different safety issues. It's focused on, excuse me, transformational safe system infrastructure, as well as interim and safe system supporting treatments that all help move towards a vision zero. It presents an understanding of the risk issues and has a strategy developed to address each of these key issues. The strategic investment guidelines are expected to have a major impact on road trauma and some of those benefits are already being realised in Victoria. On to uh, programme development and approval. Again, this is typically developed by receiving project nominations from the regions, uh, but it is changing in some areas to be led centrally. There's six best practice principles here, first of which is that funding allocation within the programme needs to reflect both the scale of the problem and the level of investment required to reduce risk. This acknowledges that not all risks can be ad addressed with the same cost effectiveness and that if we are to ach uh, achieve a step change in safety, they're often less cost effective uh, but, but more uh, safe system treatment transformational approaches need to be introduced to generate those better long-term outcomes. Two, 
Program approval should be based upon meeting program objectives, desirably based on KSI saved, recognising the need for a higher cost, low efficiency projects and lower cost, high efficiency projects, and the need for the overall program to represent value for money. Three, that interim and innovative solutions should be encouraged and actively facilitated. So we need an environment that encourages innovation and uh, trialling of new techniques. And I would say that the Rural Intersection Activated Warning Sign Trial, or REORS, in New Zealand is a really good example of where new technology has been trialled and been highly effective at reducing fatal and serious injury crashes at rural crossroads. On to number four, safety benefits should not be traded off against other transport costs such as travel costs. Uh, it's acknowledged that this one's not applicable to all jurisdictions based on current rules, but it is for some, including New Zealand. And that's really there because uh, there's been experiences where some safe system treatments can't get funded because the need to account for incremental travel time costs pushes the BCR into a low or negative territory. Five, where practicable, programs should explore the opportunity to maximise the economies of scale through themed treatments or spatial clustering. So in terms of themed treatments, we mean barrier programs or audio tactile uh, paving programs, and the economy of scale comes from bulk purchase materials, uh, concentration of skills and specialism in the design delivery phase. And spatial clustering is all about Piggybacking, so what else can be done uh, in the same area as a major project to improve the overall safety outcomes, you reduce uh, site establishment fees and save on temporary traffic management. And lastly, that KPIs should re reflect the program objectives but desirably be based on KSI saved. Case study here again comes from New Zealand. Um, in New Zealand, the transport agency has looked to improve the effectiveness of the way they develop their safety programs by basing these around a combination of road function, volume and risk, and using a gap analysis approach to identify what more, uh, what else needs to be done to reach those targets, as well as highlighting those parts of the network identified as being high risk, but not currently programmed. Uh, they've adopted a mixed approach of proactive and reactive measures, and now this has informed an enhanced state highway program that is now well advanced and uh, heading towards the design phase. On to five, or uh, E, design and delivery. Um, we have four best practice principles here, that projects should go through a road safety audit at the design stage, and two, that design and audit guidelines need to reflect the latest research into how the safe system can be achieved in practice. Uh, look, this arose uh, from concerns around designer risk aversion um, of certain designs not complying with design specifications, and that might have resulted in, uh, say, for instance, a, a central median wire rope barrier not being installed because offsets were not met. But the question here was, well, what, what's the worst outcome? Not providing the barrier or having a barrier with a below standard offset? And Ostroads is currently uh, updating or planning to update the guides to road design, management and safety to reflect some of the issues that have arose from this process and to embed those safe system processes uh, into those guides. 
Three, that details of the delivered product need to be recorded and inputted to appropriate systems. This is all about maintaining visibility around what is built. Four, that risk reduction predictions need to be revised to reflect the delivered product. And this is acknowledging that the design can evolve through the process but needs to be um, assessed to understand whether or not it will retain the same level of effectiveness as was originally intended. The case study here comes from Victoria, uh, where SRIP formed, has formed a Tiger team, also known as Team Zero, to manage the de design and delivery of the highest priority projects on high-speed roads. The advantage of this centralised team is to achieve project consistency, generate economies of scale for procurement, um, have centralised specialist knowledge and links, consistent links to key stakeholders. But as with anything where there are lots of benefits, there are normally downsides and SWIP have acknowledged that there are risks to the regions with this process, who are the ultimate owners of many of the assets and a potential loss of skill transfer from a centralised approach. So to overcome this, the uh, SRIP has um, embedded Tiger Team staff into the regions uh, to work closely with the regional staff to ensure that decisions meet the asset owner's needs and that issues are considered in a local context. And uh, lastly, monitoring and evaluation. There's five principles here. The first of these is that monitoring and evaluation should be a requirement of all programs and consider process evaluation, short-term indicators, longer-term risk reduction outcomes, and the performance of the wider program. Two, the evaluation of projects and programs should validate the risk reduction prediction. So that's, uh, did it, was it better, worse, or about as we expected? On to three, that the results from the monitoring and evaluation need to be shared to optimise the delivery of programs over the time. Do we do more of some things and less of others? Four, that evaluation needs to account for external factors and regression to the mean. So this needs to be tested against control sites, otherwise we're at the risk of drawing false conclusions from a simple before and after assessment. And lastly, that the monitoring and evaluation programs need to be assessed against the outcomes identified at the outset of the program. Did we end up better, similar or worse than expected and why? So that those processes, those answers can be fed back right at the start of the process. Uh, the case study here comes from Victoria um, using the GOSPA approach that was developed by Monash University. It's a four-tiered evaluation process that starts at, at the very highest order, looking at um, uh, assessing strategic performance on global measures, moving right through to a fourth-tier um, assessment of individual effectiveness of programs such as the SRIP Stage 3 project evaluation, program evaluation. It's not a project evaluation, that's important to note. We're nearly there, and um, now I'll just briefly step you through four recommendations that we have for implementing the research. First of all, the research report includes a self-evaluation checklist with all the principles listed, and we've got a five-staged uh, or five-tiered uh, progress evaluation there from not achieved right through to achieve. We very much encourage all road controlling authorities, not just uh, national or state authorities, also local authorities, to self-evaluate themselves so that we can understand where people are at at the moment. 
Uh, also, we're keen to benchmark industry progress in these areas, so encouraging uh, the authorities to continually on an annual or three yearly basis to assess where they're at against these uh, best practice principles and so that the guidance can also be updated as well as we get feedback on that. Thirdly, uh, to integrate safe system into strategic documents. As I've said, Austroads have several updates underway or in the pipeline uh, focused around ensuring safe system principles are encapsulated into the guidance. And lastly, um, consider application to broader infrastructure program. So whilst this guidance was developed primarily for road safety infrastructure programs, it could be developed to extend to other infrastructure programs. And now we're ready to hit the questions. Yeah, thank you. So we've received some questions from the audience, which we'll go through now. Thank you for those who sent those through. But the first question that we received is from Ray. And they've asked if we are moving away from a black spot approach towards a route-based or safe system, what are the implications for evaluation? Do you think we should evaluate the effectiveness of road safety infrastructure programs by measuring their effectiveness in reducing actual fatalities and serious injuries or their effectiveness in reducing risk? That is a good question. And um, reduction in risk should uh, lead to a reduction of fatal and serious uh, injuries as a result. I'd suggest that we need to measure both and because the reason being that on a year-to-year -year basis you can have fluctuations in actual safety performance that over the long term should um, regress towards the mean. And look, we know from star rating and other proactive risk measure approaches as risk is lowered safety outcomes improve. So um, I, I would encourage Ray and others to measure progress of, of programs against both risk that exists on their networks or on corridors, as well as um, what we're actually seeing in terms of high severity road trauma as well. Yeah, great, thanks for answering that one. I hope that's answered your question, Ray. We have a question from Costa in relation to slide 39. So you mentioned new safety technologies for rural roads. Uh, what were these technologies and what were the outcomes as in how well they worked? So can you expand on that one? Okay, the technology that I mentioned was uh, REORS, uh, which is uh, stands for Rural Intersection Activated Warning Signs. This is something that's been uh, trialled and applied um, more widely now in New Zealand, and that involves um, rural crossroads that are controlled by give way or stop signs and it detects the presence of a vehicle approaching on the side road and as a result changes the speed limits in a variable manner on the on the through movement uh, that has priority and what we've seen there is that we get um, good uh, speed reduction on those main roads so in the event that someone fails to stop on the side road there's a greater likelihood of avoiding a collision uh, and if a collision does occur, then the impact forces are significantly minimised due to the lowest speeds. I don't have the figures um, at hand, but that's something that we can um, look to provide um, through to Costa, um, and we can do that um, after the, the webinar concludes. But they have that's been very effective. Yeah, excellent. That sounds good. Uh, so we've received a question from Hassan. 
so they've asked as some roads in the new south wales are rms compliant so do they will so will they have to follow the same audit guidelines as per OSROADS or will they have their separate independent auditing tools? Well, look, uh, that's a great question and I don't know if I can answer that one offhand, Dave. No, we might have to investigate that one a bit further and uh, seek some clarification from OSROADS and get back to uh, that person yep, individually. Yep. Yeah. So we'll take that offline, Hassan, and we'll get back to you. Uh, we've received a question from Andrew in relation to slide 43. So is a summary that a centralised design resource office is not the preferred model? So is that, can you expand on that one? Oh, no, I'm not, we're not saying that that's not the preferred mm -hmm. model. In fact, that has a number of uh, benefits uh, for having that as well. Um, particularly important for your really high profile projects. There's a number of benefits from clustering the resource together there. They're certainly not saying that um, the intention is to take projects away from the regions, but there are benefits that are realisable from clustering a, you know, the development and delivery of certain aspects of a program into that uh, central area. And then that um, central knowledge can be used to support the regions as well um, for the design delivery of projects um, at a regional level. So there are benefits, but um, we need to be aware of what the risks are. And the example from Victoria uh, was considered to be a good example of how those risks are being managed um, very well. Great. Thanks for answering that one. Heath has asked, is there any local government case studies? Do you know if they, they exist? Any local government ones? Yeah any case studies relating to local government? Uh, we haven't identified any um, through this particular project, but through another Austro's research project that our team were involved in, which is looking at speed management, we have identified some um, very helpful um, case studies there around speed management implementation, which relates to part of the road safety infrastructure program process. Uh, so that'll be something which will be uh, published later this year and uh, may be quite, quite helpful in that regard. Thanks for answering that. We received a question from Partha. They've asked, can we use the same approach for monitoring and evaluation in both proactive and reactive program developments? Uh, yes, look, that, that's a good question. I, I think the answer there is yes. There's no reason why the evaluation method should change depending on whether or not you adopt a proactive or reactive approach. Um, included within the report is a very helpful figure that says if, if we retain the, I guess, the traditional reactive approach, we may see um, better road safety performance in the very short term, but in the long term, that performance won't get to the levels that investment and in safe system transformation will get us to. So it is sort of a, a bit of a, a trade-off in that respect that if we head down this uh, typically more expensive approach of upgrading a smaller part of the network but bringing it up to the highest standard. Uh, we may not um, reduce road trauma as quickly in the immediate uh, years as we would with a um, reactive approach, but in the medium to long term we'll reap those rewards. Okay, thanks for, thanks for clarifying. 
Brett has asked in relation to slide 21, in relation to strategic direction. So you mentioned funding should be commensurate with KPIs and expected outcomes and under analysis, you suggest a network level, including local roads, where any local road authorities included, typically local governments obtaining very little safety funding and have, but have a significant proportion of crashes. So local government weren't specifically engaged um, with directly for this um, particular project, but um, the, both the project team and all of the key stakeholders designed the work here and the principles in a manner that could be transferable um, from both the largest state or national authority uh, to the smallest and also were cognizant of the fact that it needed to be transferable to um, uh, local government as well. So that they're very much worded in a, a manner that's um, broad and can be applied at um, any level of um, uh, road control and authority level. Yeah. Okay. So Brett's expanded. So should state and federal governments be looking at the problem at a state level and allocating the funds accordingly? Absolutely. I think um, it, there needs to be a broad acknowledgement of if we have, say, 1,000 deaths and serious injuries on a road network every year, and the aim is to reduce that to zero over 30, 40, 50 years, an appreciation of what's required in terms of investment to get us there and to start aligning programs so that um, investment um, mirrors uh, the investment required to get us to that level over time. Excellent. I hope that's answered your question, Brett. So Suresh has asked in relation to slide 44, which is monitoring and evaluation. So they wanted to know the typical duration for assessing short-term indicators and long-term indicators. Look, uh, uh, good question, and uh, I don't have that answer um, with me right now or on the tip of my tongue. So, look, um, I'll, we'll take that one offline and get back to Suresh. Yeah, excellent. We'll take that one offline. Uh, John's asked, what is the time frame for Osroads to implement the program's requirements, the RSIP requirements, into the Osroads Road Safety Audit Guidelines, so slide 42? So when will the updated road safety order guidelines be released? Yeah, we, may, we may have to discuss that one with Lost Roads as well, yeah. uh, to be honest. Right. Uh, that's not something we've received any guidance on at this stage. But we do know that the guide to road safety um, is in the, the plans to be upgraded with the safe system principles. And so no doubt um, uh, this uh, research report will feed into that update as well. Excellent. We'll get back to you on that one, John. So Partha's asked, so reducing, reducing risk or reducing actual KSIs is different, isn't it? Can you comment on that one? Yeah, that, that's right. That was uh, similar to one of the earlier questions that was asked. So uh, risk relates to the underlying level of risk that exists. Um, typically, that's expressed in terms of star rating, one to five stars with five stars being the safest um, type of road infrastructure and one being the least. Um, but we know that on some one-star roads, there may not be any deaths or serious injuries observed on that road um, in five or 10 years, simply because we have very low levels of exposure or traffic volume. That doesn't mean that the road's safe. So um, understanding and measuring both risk and um, fatal and serious outcomes at a network level, both are very important. 
and over time um, and, and the larger you make your assessment area, the closer they should align. So as risk is reduced, you'd anticipate that um, uh, your KSI would also reduce as well. Excellent. So Gordon's asked in relation to slide 33, was any best practices identified for crash and near miss data collection what is it? How should it be adopted and captured in the monitoring and evaluation process and benchmarking effectiveness? And what role does the community and stakeholders play in this? I know there's a lot of questions. Uh, yeah, look, good question. And we know that um, the way crash data is collected uh, varies um, between New Zealand and Australia and within Australia at a state level as well. Uh, I guess the, the issue around crashes that aren't reported in formal databases is understanding the uh, variability that exists there in terms of reporting rates. And it, it is difficult to try and, um, I guess, come up with a, a central process for how that should be done that spans all of the Austroads um, participants and stakeholders as well. Um, it wasn't really considered as part of the process, but I, we understand the issue that's presented um, in that question there. Okay, thanks for answering. So to consider both individual and collective crash risk, would you adopt several metrics in average or aggregate the risks? How is, the, how is it best to prioritise this often competing metrics? Yeah, look, that's a good question. So um, I can speak to the New Zealand example. Typically, what they'll do is um, have a matrix approach where uh, collective risk is plotted on one axis and personal risk on the other, and where you have both high collective and high personal risk. That is indicative of potentially a safe system transformational style intervention, whereas if you have low collective risk but high personal risk, that's more suggestive of uh, I guess traditional engineering treatments to do things like improving site visibility, improving the or reducing the severity of roadside hazards. Um, and when we get the inverse of that situation, high collective risk and low personal risk, uh, that's more of a suggested of the need to upgrade infrastructure, uh, potentially head down a speed management path and, and the like to improve outcomes there for large number of road users. So. Yeah, adopting a matrix type approach can help inform the nature of your intervention. Okay, thanks for answering. Uh, Perrine's asked, so how does the facility type, how will it be addressed? What do you mean by, I don't understand yeah. the question, sorry, what is the, yeah. the How will it be addressed? Perrine, if you could um, expand on your question. But um, in the meantime, we have another question. Is there any difference when applied to another jurisdiction in terms of the effect of regional bias? Oh, look, uh, certainly um, safety issues will vary um, but from region to region and even from um, district to district. Uh, and I guess the importance of some of the principles will vary uh, across those areas as well to reflect the nature of the issues you have. So I would say at a, a state and national level, all of the best practice principles here are, should be considered uh, to be highly important. Some of those may um, 
be slightly lower in importance at a local government level where the nature of issues may be more defined and more um, easily uh, addressed with a, a narrower, I guess, suite of interventions. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, they should be ignored in totality and, and that should be up to the individual road controlling authorities to, I guess, um, place appropriate importance on each of the principles. Having said that, um, if you um, weren't well advanced in at least some of the principles at each of the six stages, then I'd say um, there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that one. So Praveen's come back and saying it's segment, intersection and interchanges. So how will that be addressed? That's in terms of facility type. Um, the, the work we've done has been um, perhaps a little more high level than that rather than focusing on individual projects and the differences between projects and how they should be approached. It is um, higher level and at, at a more strategic level in terms of uh, program delivery. Uh, so that's not something that we have addressed under this uh, particular piece of work. Great, thanks for answering. So is there any anything extra that would need to be considered for all other programs to that considered specifically for safety programs? Uh, look, depending on the, the I guess, the, the nature of the program, if we're talking about a um, uh, public transport program or if there's something in terms of um, travel time reliability, Yes, absolutely. There'd be a different set of um, indicators that would be needed to help inform that. However, um, as we've tried to highlight here, safety needs to be considered at the forefront of, of any transport program. And so these uh, set of best practice principles we've presented here um, can be readily transferred and woven into uh, other programs outside of the road safety infrastructure program development and embedded there to help achieve those safety benefits um, across different transport programs that roading authorities are progressing. Okay, thanks for clarifying. So Praveen's come back saying, in the case of intersection collision, have you considered the influence area, so plus or minus 250 feet? Oh look, again, I would say that that's, uh, we, we're starting to deal with a, um, um, it's a project level and not a program level type uh, question here. So it's sort of outside of the scope of what's been considered for this uh, piece of work. Okay. Uh, David's asked, so why wouldn't all road authorities adopt a road safety management system such as Western Australia? That's a good question. Uh, I think every road authority should have uh, some form of uh, road safety management system in place. Um, to say what they're going to be doing as an organisation in terms of uh, guiding uh, how they prioritise safety. This report here um, helps provide some good structural context to how that might be formed at, a, um, at, the, at the six different stages, but um, that overarching you know, strategic guidance, I'd, I'd strongly encourage all um, roading authorities to um, put one of those together and um, get in touch with Western Australia to uh, find out more about theirs. Great. We received a good question, which is how how will the safe system approach, how could it be adopted across the organisation rather than just in the safety area? 
It's a good question, and it, look, it's something that's uh, still being grappled with. Um, I know that in uh, Victoria, for instance, in the Thrip team, they've got a dedicated team involved just for embedding safe system philosophy throughout their organisations and making sure that everyone um, in that organisation understands what it means uh, and what it doesn't mean. Uh, look, we've still got a long way to go, I think, as an industry to get um, everyone on, on the same page. Uh, people may say that they support safe system in theory, but um, the extent to which that's occurring in practice, I'd say, might be lagging a little bit behind. Uh, and it's really about um, changing the conversation around to that safe mobility argument. So safety is not negotiable. Um, here's the safety performance we want for a piece of road or a corridor. And then what level of mobility can we um, uh, provide within that safety context um, rather than the other way around, which has been uh, the way things have been done for several years now. Excellent. Thanks for clarifying that one. So in relation to slide 48, are any of the jurisdictions implementing the recommendations at this stage? Uh, we don't know. Uh, the report's only really just been published. So um, apart from those highlighted in the case studies and uh, I would guess uh, the stakeholders that have been involved in the process, I would suspect um, some people uh, will be doing some good things. but. Um, perhaps by coincidence rather than reading the guidance, but uh, we're hoping now that the guidance is out there and available that um, people will be able to um, self-evaluate where they're at at the moment and start identifying an action plan for uh, improving their practices in road safety infrastructure program development and delivery. Thanks for answering. So that is all the questions that we received. So hopefully that's answered a lot of your questions and we'll get back to those people uh, in terms of taking the questions offline. Before we'd let you go, I'd like to let you know of some upcoming webinars that we have lined up. So as you can see on this slide, we will be running a webinar on the updated pedestrian facility selection tool, which is on the 29th of May. Dave Smith will be joining us again as a presenter of this session, along with his colleague, Stacey Rendell. So to register for this event, please go on the website. We are also holding program update webinars for each of our programs, such as safety, network, and connected and automated vehicles. We will post up information and dates once details are finalized. Also, for your convenience, our webinars are now available as podcasts. To subscribe, simply search for Osroads on your podcast app or you can use our RSS feed. And for those who aren't aware, Osroads has partnered with RMS New South Wales to bid to host the World Road Congress in Sydney in 2023. This event is an opportunity to showcase some of our groundbreaking innovation and play an active role in shaping the future of our global community. Please support Australia and New Zealand's bid and join us on the road to Sydney in 2023. You could visit the website for more information. And as always, we'd like to thank everyone who participated today. We hope you found this session interesting. As we close up, we'd like your feedback and, let, and if you could let us know if you're interested in other topics for future webinars. So please fill out our survey after the webinar. If you do have any burning questions, you can get in contact with us. And of course, lastly, I'd like to thank Paul and Dave for taking your time to speak today. You're most welcome. Yeah, thanks, Liz. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you. Goodbye, all.